In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. You know, coming to St. Augustine's, I guess I was thinking of that great saint because what leapt out to me as my opening prayer was this quote from St. Augustine of Hippo in the Confessions. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That line, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I think that might even sum up all the, the longing of, the, of our greatest stories from the Bible. I mean, we, we have this great longing as humans, I think all of us. It's that longing that we know that we are safe and loved, that we belong, that we can be at rest, that we're not on high alert. And, and that kind of deep, peaceful resting, that is what I think we're getting at when we talk about that peace that passes all understanding, that encompasses so much. And since it's such a deep longing, it's what we're always searching for with our, with our whole selves, to be seen and to be loved. When we don't feel that, when we feel uneasy, or when we feel like we're on high alert, then we start looking for that which is missing, that which will make us feel at ease again, and that, that will take the hurt away. We want to belong, and so our longing, our longing is what drives us. When we hear the living word of God, yes, we are transported to back in those days and back in those stories, and we are dropped in the middle of conversations normally too. But it also speaks to us today. And so the Bible to me, today I think, the great theme of the Bible is that it is so many stories knit together, continuing through centuries and centuries of great human longing. So our first reading, we heard that part about Hannah. And in Hannah's story, which is recorded in the first book of Samuel, Hannah, when she gets her heart's longing fulfilled, bursts out in song. So since songs are meant, we usually sing or say them together, like the Psalms, that book. Instead of our psalm for today, we had the Song of Hannah. And so Song of Hannah, I know it's not December yet, but Advent is coming, that really sounded a lot like the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. And so both of these women, they remind us that women know what it's like to long for God to show up in their lives, especially when it comes for longing for a child. And so they also, when they lift up their voices, Hannah did it, and Mary, remembering her song, sung out her own, they sing about and proclaim the greatness of God because that's where their hearts finally find rest. In Hannah's story, she longed for many, many years, actually, for a child. And she's withstanding the, the conflict and the ire of her husband, Elkanah's more fertile wife, who has many children, and that is always in front of her. It's hard not to turn bitter when other people have what you want. And so Hannah and her heart, she is restless for years She's longing for a child of her own. And so she brings herself to those mighty stones, to the steps of the temple, that fortress of faith, that, that strength. And she is so distraught that Eli, who is a priest there, thinks that she's drunk, that she's out of her mind. 
but she stands her ground, even in her despair, pouring out her heart for the umpteenth time. She says, no, this is my heartache. This is not something that I've done to take the pain away, to numb my feelings. I am feeling all of my feelings, and this is what I long for. So after this, Eli, as a priest of the temple, joined his prayers with hers. And because he realizes that it's her heart's longing and her heart breaking, that he sends her out in peace. That's the first thing he blesses her with. Go in peace. Of course, she's going to be restless until she can find that. Go in peace, he said. And he said, the God of Israel, grant the petition you have made to him. And of course, as it's recorded, Hannah does give birth to a child named Samuel who's going to grow up to be one of the great judges. And so her heart was no longer broken. It was put back together again. That sense of longing, that deep longing that passes years, we all have that. Our human capacity for longing is because we want to be connected to one another. We're hardwired for that. And it's what has made these last few years so difficult. I mean, we just weathered hurricane season, but we've been weathering a much longer storm together. And that sense of togetherness has been fractured. That's what has made it so hard. In those early days, you couldn't hardly see nobody. We were all social distancing, and we felt that isolation. And we we felt that tug because it's not in our wiring to be by our lonesomes, to be too much alone. And so our bodies, our hearts, our souls direct us to to who we're supposed to be, connected and, and together and surrounded by love. So our hearts start longing for what we couldn't have right then. We have lots of different experiences of longing. We long to see those that we see no more. We have the kind of grief for things or relationships that have changed, are beyond repair, or are lost, or even for those things that have never come to be. There's all sorts of different kinds of grief, which are, of course, longing. And the complicated thing about grief is, in my experience, that grief is powerful, and it can be so difficult to feel our powerful emotions. And so what can happen is that grief can put on a mask, or we want to put on a mask to hide our grief. And the mask for grief can turn into anger. Anger, like a protectant in front of us. I will shield myself in anger to not quite feel the depths of my pain. I think we see this especially in politics these days. We see a lot of anger, name-calling, forgetting that one another, that we are all human, candidates or voters, all human. And while I couldn't find the author, it brings me back to this phrase. When I sat with my anger long enough, I learned that her name was Grief. While I believe we have a long way to go in this country to get back to a a civil discourse where we can respect and listen to one another without fighting dirty, when I have the time and the space to breathe and pause and try to really understand where other people are coming from, 
I try to get under what might be the viciousness of an attack on someone else's party or platform or beliefs. I try to dig a little deeper and, and wonder and have a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of compassion. What might this person be grieving underneath it all so that they are clinging to anger as what they are finding a little shallow comfort in rather than trusting the world, their friends, their family with their actual pain? Because we're human. We cling to the things we think are going to make us comfortable, even sometimes when they're not. We cling to places and people, especially that represent who we are and that we think gives us stability and strength. So take, for example, those, those giant stones that made up the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't just Hannah that came to the temple. Scores of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people for the festivals too, through the ages, had come to believe that those stones that made up the temple would always be there. That was going to be their rock. And Jesus, as was his custom, not just going to the synagogue where he was locally, he goes to the temple in Jerusalem. The Gospels start us there this morning. And the Gospels are a record of the time in the very early church where it was very tumultuous, not just politically, but religiously, socially. Things are not well. And the Gospels were either written, we dating the scrolls, either just before or just after the destruction of the temple. It's in 70 AD that Rome, that great war hawk um, civilization, destroys Jerusalem. It sends all the Jews into exile right again. And what the fall of the temple also meant was that this, um, this sect, these uh, Jesus is the Messiah believing Jews, are no longer just seen as a part of Judaism, an expression of that. They're seen as their own entity. So things are very different and up in the air when the Gospels are recording what it's like and what is leading to these days. And the Gospel dialogue that we are really dropped in, like eavesdropping today, the disciples are immediately uncomfortable that Jesus would bring up that they are living through apocalyptic kind of times. Apocalyptic meaning there's a lot of things happening. They were distraught. They were afraid, they were probably even angry, that he would say that not even the great stones of the temple could stay intact. But that's the thing about apocalypse, that Greek word. It's not all fire and brimstone. I know I'm of the age that there was a very popular Christian novel series that made a lot to do about the end times. They flew off the shelves. I think they did more harm than good. The apocalypse in the Greek says nothing about fire and brimstone in that word, but it does have this um, calling out that things are to be revealed, that it's going to be an unveiling. Well, that's a very different field than all that doom and gloom that folks try to tell me when I was young and scare me into believing things. No, it, the kind of reckoning, I think, is the putting back together of what the, the, the coming together time, we can say, is. The kind of reckoning is what comes when we can see things as they really are and the way things that are heading. 
Because when you can really see things, then you can know what the great longing is and what people are looking for, where we are fractured, where we need to put things back together again. And also what is breaking in new into our lives. Jesus, in that same vein, in that same conversation, talks about birth pangs. There is no birth, right, without change. So too with that great revealing, like in birth, like in meeting your child at the airport for an adoption the first time. That great revealing can be a joy as much as it has been a struggle and painful to get to. So talk about the struggle of change and new things coming. My hope is that after years, really, of change, and with changes still all around us, that we know that we do not have to cling to what we thought were the safety of building blocks from the past. We don't have to cling to anything that is so rigid that it can just fall apart because it's just a stone, it's just a block. It might even be a, a sacred cow that we're lifting up. No, we can, we can turn instead to being supported in the idea, in, in the comfort, that we do not have to be the same people we were yesterday. We can be open to the kind of transformation of the unconditional love of God, that no matter where we are, God is with us through and in those changes, as scary as they may be. In being a disciple of Jesus, we hear that those man-made things, the things that we have lifted up as the greatest, even they can't withstand all change. They're not timeless. Only God is. So in discipleship, discipleship is really an invitation not to stay the same. It's the opposite. Discipleship is that invitation to grow. And if that stretches us and we're not sure how we feel about it, we have to take comfort in one another being a part of that journey together. That to follow Jesus, to learn from this teacher and the great shepherd of our souls means to also be open to the change and the changes to come. It makes me think that that work, I mean that church can be a bit like a workout. We're exercising those spiritual muscles. And talking about change, you know, when we have a workout buddy, they're always going to cheerlead us on, right? And we're supposed to celebrate the changes that come from that. It's hard, but there's good things coming. So I think church, we could learn from that. Church can be the kind of place where we become one another's cheerleaders, that we can change, we can make it through transformation, that we can be made new over and over again. We kind of need workout buddies in church to say, I see that you've been changing. I know that you're not the same person you used to be. I get it. I'm there too. It's not always perfect. It can be messy sometimes, but we're in this together. I think that church needs to be the safe place where we find our cheerleaders to encourage one another to keep celebrating how far we've come everything that we've had to let go of, too, that we thought was going to give us security, to be open to God leading us to new places and through all of these challenging times. I mean, I think church has to be the place for that because where else can you get to be in a room of people of different ages and stages of life? You drove from different zip codes to get here. 
I mean, this is such a wonderful church example that you can sit in the pews next to people with a different immigration status, who voted different than you did, whose family looks different from yours does, and we can lift those up as being the great part of coming together to be the diversity of the body of Christ made to come together and to see one another and to love one another as we really are. This is the church, this is the place, I guess, where we work out how to really reconcile, to put things that are fractured back together again. Because we actually learn here and then we practice so we can take it out into the world what it means to share real peace, to pass the peace with one another. The world is desperate and longing for that kind of deep peace where different people can come together and recognize each other's humanity and recognize that God loves you the same that God loves me and nothing will ever change that. The world is longing for a deep kind of peace that comes from being recognized and sharing peace with one another. That takes a lot of change along the way. It takes a lot of acceptance of things not always being the same. I mean, I've grown up in the Episcopal Church my whole life, which isn't too long, but long enough, and I've seen it go through some significant changes. And if it didn't go through changes, we were just watching in coffee hour, presiding Bishop Michael Curry, who through Zoom spoke at Dawson Convention just the other weekend. We would never have him as a part of the church if the church didn't have to be broken open to make room for more people, to say there's plenty of room and plenty of good food and plenty to celebrate together. If the church didn't have to be changing and going through transformation after transformation, we would never make room for more folks to come in. We would never make room for folks like me to be priests or bishops because I didn't see nobody that looked like me up here when I was growing up, y'all. And that's a big change. And it's not just up here, it's in the pews. Thank goodness the church has been able to change and to bring in and welcome and celebrate that our churches and our schools should be filled and celebrated. That it doesn't, everybody doesn't have to look or talk like me. That we can be young and old, gay and straight, black, Hispanic, Asian, all serving in the church together all learning and changing together and cheering each other on too. So I'll, I want to share with you something that we would never have if the church wasn't breaking open and making room for all of us to be a part of it. Because this new friend of mine, he's a priest. We're in a ministry cohort together online. And he has this book on proclaiming and that power to change lives, starting with our own lives and also speaking about the Episcopal Church. And he's young, and he's black, and he's gay, and he grew up in Baptist land, and he found the Episcopal Church and said, there's something about Jesus here that folks need to hear about. And so now he's serving and preaching and writing, and I think this just gets to the heart of this apocalypse, this, this revealing, this great unveiling of where we're headed, that it's difficult, but we're going to get there together, holding hands together. This is what he says. It is the love of Christ, the power of his resurrection, that enables our eyes to see the brokenness of this world and to respond with grace and conviction that the way things are is not the way that they have to be. It is the love of Christ, the power of his resurrection, that opens our hearts to the hard work of forgiveness 
and reconciliation when the old ways of relating to one another prove incapable of bearing up transforming relationships. We do all of this not because it's just the compassionate thing to do, but because we see a new world is breaking through right now, that the mighty are being cast down, that the poor are being raised up, that the rich are being sent away empty, the hungry are being filled. We do what we do as followers of Jesus because we live in a new age, one in which compassion not enmity, rules the day. So God knows that we can be afraid of change, but God knows that, loves us through us, loves us through it, and calls us to be open to change so that love, God's unconditional love, can be revealed in these times. Amen.